Good afternoon and welcome to the latest episode of the Varian Viewpoints podcast series sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity and Justice and the Rutgers Center for Minority Serving Institutions. I'm your host, Alexis Weatherspoon, and I use she, her, and Aya pronouns, and I am a John Smart Summer Scholar intern. Today, I am here with our amazing invited guest, Ajama Webster. Ajama is a licensed professional engineer and created his own structural and civil engineering firm in 1988 in my hometown of Kansas City, Missouri, the 816. Ajama is an active participant in several professional organizations and board commitments in the Kansas City area. I first met Ajamu as an elementary student at JS Chick African Center Chile and vividly recall his engagement and advocacy and keeping its doors open to the Black students in the community. It's great to have you in this space today, Ajamu. Jambo, how are you today? see Jambo, and thank you for having me on your podcast. Of course, of course. I'm so glad you're able to make it. Um, definitely looking forward to our conversation. Um, and so are there anything you want to say, um, any shout outs for today before we get started? Well, first of all, just give a shout out to you because I'm <laughs> very, very proud of you and what you've been able to do cool. with, with your career, with your life. You know, when you made the introduction that we met in elementary school, I didn't want your listeners to get the impression that you were like in the kindergarten and I was in the second grade. <laughs> um, so we didn't meet that way. You That's know, true. you were a... A, uh, a young student there in elementary school and and uh, you know I was an involved parent there and so um, that's how we met. I want to give a shout out to your mom because <laughs> we had lunch about two months ago you know we get together a group Aww. of us get together every year uh, some of the active parents from uh, Chick African Center Chile so we've been eating lunch together probably 10, 12 years now. Mm -hmm. So uh, actually, this was dinner. So uh, your name came up. And we talked about you quite a bit. Oh, that makes and, uh, me feel special. Mom and and uh, Sharon Jackson and and uh, and uh, Samaria, Samaria Gordon, who recently got married. Just want to shout out to them. Yes. Well, thank you so much. I know my mom will love that. So mom, shout out to you too. <laughs> so uh, today's podcast is entitled It Takes a Village, Civic Professionalism in the 816. And with this discussion, I hope to highlight the work of professionals like Ajamu in underserved and under-resourced communities to discuss their impact in shaping communities and students of color's um, educational outcomes. So along with my research interest in civics and creating third spaces, I came across a book produced by the Ash Higher Education Report entitled The Ecology of College Readiness by Karen Arnold, Alyssa Liu, and Kelly Armstrong. And so while reading, I came across this quote that I wanted to make sure we brought up in the podcast because it just related so well. And um, before we got into the questions, I thought it'd be just great to mention. So here's the quote. Um, Students develop the aspirations and behaviors that affect their academic preparation in light of opportunities, resources, hazards, and options that originate beyond their immediate environments. It goes on to say that educationally and economically disadvantaged students shape their lives in response to forces such as financial aid availability, poor schools, residential segregation, racism, poverty, immigration policy, neighborhood violence, and devalued cultural capital. So given my own experiences and those of my family and peers back home in Kansas City, I thought it would be great um, and important to invite someone like Ajamu who can speak to some of these same issues that are influencing the Kansas City community and how he, as a civic professional, 
has made an impact. So thank you so much, Ajamu, again, for being here today. Um, let's get into All it. Right. <laughs> All right. So first off, tell us about your journey to where you are today, personally and professionally. Okay. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and I went to college at Southern University, Bad Rouge, Louisiana, and HBCU, mm-hmm. and it changed my life. It changed mm-hmm. my life because there I met my mentor, a gentleman by the name of Morgan Watson. And Mr. Watson, in addition to being a professor in mechanical engineering, he also owned a civil engineering firm. Um, And mechanical and civil engineering are quite close as far as disciplines are concerned. So um, he and I met when I was a junior and I was married then and he took a liking to me because I was a married college student and and, um, he was a married college student and he asked me to work on a project with him with the state. And eventually that rolled into me working for his firm. Now, what was interesting about Mr. Watson, one day I asked him, I said, Mr. Watson, now, this is in the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, late 70s. I said, Mr. Watson, and, and just kind of give your listeners a, kind of a frame of reference for that. Mm-hmm. That was about the time when African-American engineering students were really being heavily recruited. Prior to that, probably was not the case. But being heavily recruited during that time, corporate America was opening up. Uh, we were kind of like the second wave going in. The first wave went in and made space for us. And so we were being recruited heavily, and it was not uncommon for students to have seven or eight or sometimes 10 offers graduated, graduating with an engineering bachelor's degree. So I asked Mr. Watson, I said, Mr. Watson, you know, you know, students are getting very large salaries and, you know, and corporate America is, is coming in and hiring professors right off the campus. You know, what, what made you uh, hold on to having your own engineering firm? And Mr. Watson turned to me and he said, son, let me tell you something. I'd rather own my own Volkswagen than to chauffeur somebody else's limousine. Okay. <laughs> and with that being said, he, he became very intentional about training me to not only uh, go into engineering, which was my goal, but to own an engineering firm. Mm-hmm. Very intentional about that. So I worked with him until... Uh, graduation time, worked with him a little bit after that, the economy changed uh, drastically and he was not able to keep a permanent space for me. And so I was recruited to come to Kansas City and, and by Burns and McDonald. And Mr. Watson told me, I'll give you a year, you can come back when you get that first snow up in Kansas, we <laughs> run it back. And that first snow was a doozy. Um, but I wound up staying here. My wife and I, we wound up staying here in Kansas City and becoming part of the community. And following that, I worked for Burns McDonald. Uh, I uh, transferred from there and went to work for Butler Manufacturing. And I was approached by a group of uh, folks from the W.E.B. Du Bois Learning Center, mm-hmm. which Alexis, I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes, I and am. We were all tutoring in reading, math, and science uh, back then, and a group of them got together with me and said, you know, we're thinking about starting an engineering firm. What do you think? Well, of course, Mr. Watson's comments were always ever-present in my mind. I said, count me in. (laughs) And uh, four of us got together, and we started Dubois Consultants. We actually took the name from the W.E.B. Du Bois Learning Center, and uh, we started the firm. And I, I ran a firm for 33 years and sold it 
in October of last year, October 29 of last year. Uh, so that's kind of my professional uh, side of it. From a community side of it, became very active in the Kansas City community from the from the time we got here. And, and I literally mean that. Uh, Mrs. Webster and I got to Kansas City on a Wednesday and on a Friday, we were at an event sponsored by the Learning Center, a fundraising event. And that Saturday morning, we became involved with the Learning <laughs> Center. So it didn't take us very long at all. And from there, you know, we, we leveraged that educational work into other works. Um, we started a chapter of the National Black United Front which was very involved in African-centered education and our relationship with Mrs. Uh, Queen Mother Audrey Ballard yes, when she yes. was at Pinkerton Elementary School. Yeah, before your time, she was at Pinkerton. And, and on a temporary basis, just to make the transition from Pinkerton being a traditional school to Latin grammar, she was there for one year while Mrs. Grant, who was the permanent principal, went to get training. And we struck up a conversation about African-centered education Mrs. Ballard moved on to Chick School and we followed her and uh, began to take the work from National Black United Front's work on African Senate education and began to implement it at Chick. And then, of course, as you know, the rest is history because that's when you come into that history. <laughs> uh, so that's a little that's a little brief. I'll just stop right there and then uh, we, we can take it from there. No, that's perfect. Um, I know you kind of touched on this in that wonderful uh, summary about your journey and everything. Thank you so much for sharing. But I want you to talk, if you can, or just speak to a little bit more about the importance of working with Kansas City, Missouri's Black community. You talked about once you got there, you were engaged a couple days later. What really has this population face that is rooted in like anti-Blackness or just inequity in general? Well, Alexis, you know, we can have some very frank, hopefully some frank conversations about this topic. And if we, we do, we'll, we'll become very quite aware is that there has never been a United States of America mm -hmm. that was not anti-African or anti-Black. It, it, it could not exist. The America we know, uh, as I like to say, anti-Blackness is baked into the American apple pie. There's no way you can slice it without coming up with anti-Black uh, sentiments, policies, public policies, uh, social conduct. It's all there. And so it doesn't matter where you live in the United States. You can go from Florida to Seattle, uh, from San Diego to Maine. It is something that you will confront. So coming, to, coming from Los Angeles, uh, I was uh, happened to be nurtured in an environment where uh, in the 60s where activism was going on and I was a child during that time and able to reserve my observe my family members heavily engaged in the political dynamics of that time. And so I kind of was, you know, that just became my awakening. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I got to high school, I was actively involved in and in, and uh, in, uh, a number of uh, what we would call African centered pursuits. Uh, anti-Black uh, uh, pursuits, if you will. And so coming to Kansas City, I was looking for the community that was there, that was advancing us from a economic, political, social, cultural uh, standpoint, mm -hmm. that was ready to take on, you know, uh, whatever challenges came to basically our ability to affirm our humanness and to be able to project ourselves in the world as 
free and and uh, vibrant and contributing people as opposed to kind of a second class status, which we've been too often forced into accepting. So coming to Kansas City was just a continuation of that journey. But the good news is that I found some sisters and brothers here who were on point. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, they were on point. Uh, For example, Leon Dixon and Bill Grace, they had started the WB Du Bois Learning Center. And it was about bringing our children up there on the weekends and two nights a week to be tutored in reading and math and science. But when I got in there, I saw they did so much more than that. And you would be amazed of the people who came through and spoke to the to those young people. Um, we had folks from the ANC, uh, African National Congress, who were touring touring the, the country in Kansas City. They come in and talk to young people. Ossie Davis was in town. He came in and spoke to young people. You know, we had uh, uh, Dick Gregory. He would come in and speak to young people. Uh, Marva Collins, the great educator from Chicago, she would come in and speak to young people. So it was much more than just uh, 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 basic math, reading skills. It really was about purpose, focus, direction, and a sense of community. So I, I say that to say to you is that I'm just a product of those experiences. I'm I'm uh, standing on the shoulders of those ancestors who came before us, who made this their life's work. And finally, I would just say to answer your question, it is inconceivable to think that the purpose of education is just to get a good job to benefit yourself. Mm. Essentially, what we be, what we should be making the focus of our education is being a valued resource to our people in our community. And if we take that approach, there'll be a lot more shoulders at the wheel of change. Uh, then we see people just taking it as, let me get mines and go on about my business. Mm-hmm. So that's, hopefully that gives you a sense of, you know, how this Kansas City journey impacted uh, what I did in terms of the, the social climate. Yes, I, I love all of what you're saying. I'm up here writing my notes and I just love what you said about affirming our humanness and just contributing to the world and that emphasis on community, which is why I brought you here, John. So you're doing a great job. And um, I'm going to move into the next question. Um, okay. In 2019, you were asked a few questions by Edgemore Infrastructure and Real Estate. You provided some details about your experience of meeting a civil engineer that lived in your neighborhood and the support of your mentor at Southern University, which you talked about earlier in our um, discussion. How might attending an HBCU or just increased exposure to professionals um, of color in the community, like you're saying, influence the Black community's outlook, especially for students of color? Okay, so I'll uh, thank you for that question. And I'm going to have to break it down in a a couple of bite-sized points if we can. So I need to be really specific in language uh, because people of color can mean many things. Many times people will use that as a catch-all to say everybody that's not white male, mm-hmm. okay, or not white. So that that doesn't—that's not descriptive enough. That's not for me to be able to explain. So I have to narrow this down to African Americans uh, because that is a unique set of historical experiences that no one else has that explains a lot of what we face in this country. It actually explains American history. So I have to be unique. 
So if you were an African-American and you attend an HBCU, for the most part, you're going to experience something that you do not experience in American public society. Mm-hmm. Okay. What you experience is for the first time, you can be someplace in America and not have race as being your primary identifier. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what that means. We would tell folks, you know, when we'd have conversations with folks who didn't go to HBCU, we would always tell them, hey, you know what? When we went to the recruitment office to be recruited uh, by firms, we knew one thing for sure. No one was going to be surprised or disappointed disappointed if they came in and they saw a black face. No one. Mm-hmm. Um, they came to get African-American students. We knew that if we were on campus and we got a grade we didn't like, it would have been silly for us to say, the professor gave me that grade because that professor is racist against African-Americans. I mean, these things you just don't, you could live in an environment where you could be who you were as a person and not be relegated to a category which defines you as other or second class. And so at an HBCU, you get a chance to do your thing. I mean, we didn't have black unions because we didn't need one. <laughs> right. Yeah, we, we just we just were in, we were in a position where we could run things, do what we need to do, and in addition to that, the president of the university was African American. The uh, the various provosts, uh, you know, you, you just the even the the uh, Southern University has three campuses, so it, it has a president of the of the system as well as a chancellor of the campus, and so you got a chance to see something that we just do not see mm-hmm. in America, at least I didn't at that time. That's seeing Black folk in responsible positions of charge unapologetically. In other words, none of them were tokens. They weren't there to fill some quota. They were there because that's where their talents and skills landed them, and they projected themselves that way. Unapologetically, they were in charge. And so you can see Morgan Watson, uh, first of all, when I got to Southern University, that the, the my engineering professor was only the second African-American I ever met that was an engineer. The first one is the reason I became an engineer. <laughs> right. But he then that made him the first African-American I'd ever met who owned an engineering firm. So there was a lot of these first, but the first themselves were just a product of the environment. They weren't token first. Okay, so that's the experience that an HBC does for you. And in addition to that, I mean, you know, when when you're at HBCU, here's one thing you learn when you go to a football game, that is nobody leaves the stands at halftime. (laughs) Exactly. Now, if you you didn't attend an HBCU, you won't even know what I'm talking about. But that's, that's an experience. Nobody leaves the stand at halftime. In fact, if you want to get something to eat, you go at halftime because there's nobody standing in line. You'd have sometimes the people who are serving food are not even back there. So it's a different cultural engagement and it's an opportunity for us to be who we are in a nurturing environment mm-hmm. that makes us primary. Once you leave there, you, uh, will, you arm yourself with the confidence, the strength and the, and the, the shielding, if you will, 
to go back into America where it's just the opposite. And you've got to really fight your way just to be recognized as being a person of human uh, and, and full value, if you ever can achieve it. Um, so sorry about speaking frankly, but- No, 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 that's great. I, please correct me. I'm here to learn, so it's all good with me. <laughs> so my next question, civic professionalism has been a new topic for me, something that I've kind of been studying. And so in my research, I've been finding that it's generally discussed through this lens that centers college and university faculty, administrators, that type of thing. Um, but their ability to kind of work alongside the community to improve healthcare, educational reform. But I want to center um, more of this civic professionalism on people like yourself, Ajama, who have, who have been doing this work in the community. Um, so how has your affiliation outside of higher education with Dubois Consultants, how has that created a different approach to professional civics in Kansas City's Black community? Very good question. One of the things that I've learned is the skills that uh, we were able to acquire in a professional setting were transferable mm -hmm. and what you what you'll find is that just say for example if, if you're an engineer you, you 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 learn how to convert science into usable products but you also learn planning budgeting um, cost controls you learn to do a number of other things that if you didn't turn around and became accessible inside of your community you could have a great impact on organizations not-for-profit organizations for-profit organizations, educational institutions, because these skills are, are skills that are in demand. You don't have to leave your job to do it. So one way to think about it or how it impacted us is we started saying, well, let's use our skill in other areas. I don't have any training as an educator, but I don't see education as being so rigid that a person with, with other skills can't find a way to contribute. Right. So we were involved there. Economically, we got involved. You know, one of the major challenges we have is that $1.2 trillion of uh, income that comes in the hands of the African-American community in the U.S., less than 2.5% of it is actually spent with Black businesses. Mm -hmm. So we began to look at, okay, that's a, that's a, that's a challenge. Right. So how do, we, how, do we, how do we attack that? And it's interesting that from an engineering standpoint, all we do is work on problems all day long. That's it. So when someone said, hey, what can we do about this issue of spending? We looked at it the way we would look at a normal problem. That is, if people have money they want to spend, do they know where the Black-owned businesses are? Mm -hmm. If they can find a Black-owned businesses, do they, can they find the ones in the various categories that they might need? And we started having these conversations, Alexis, and uh, what came out of it was the Buy Black Empowerment Initiative uh, which is an initiative started right here in Kansas City behind the work of Maggie Anderson, who wrote the book, Our Black Year. She's out of Chicago. And we developed the, the what we believe is the country's first Buy Black app. Oh, wow. And Alexis, when we did an app, people thought that it was like we just shot a rocket to the moon and back. I mean, it was like a, back in 19, uh, I mean, 2014, people were like, you, you got an app? <laughs> it, was, it was incredible. People were treating it as if it was... Again, again, like we we invented nuclear physics. I mean, it was like, how does that work? <laughs> uh, and so we put that in place. It's an example. Mm -hmm. And another example was, and it, it just came out of a, 
an appointment that I had by Mayor Mark Funkhauser to look for new economic development tools in the quote unquote economically distressed areas of Kansas City. And one of the initiatives that came from that was the, was the creation of a community development credit union. And guess what, Alexis? We started on that in, 20, in 2009, and I'm here to report to you that as of a, a week from past Friday, after working all these years, we finally received approval from the Federal Credit Union Administration oh for a charter to open this credit union, which is going to be opened up at Linwood and Prospect. Wow. And I've only told one other media oh, outlet. Oh, I feel so special, but that's amazing. That is so amazing. And what it comes down to is just looking at our skills, not in a silo that we're taught that they are, mm -hmm. but looking at them laterally and saying, now, how can this, how can this help? And, and it's not just looking at it narrowly. Like I don't walk around the community saying, what, what can I do with engineering skills to help the community? No, I'm just, what can I do with math science? What can I do with, with computer science? What can I do with planning? What can I do with those skills that'll have an impact in our community? Mm -hmm. And I'm not the first one to think of that, not by a long shot. But what I found is that once we go on that pursuit, we have we're going on a path that is going to be significant to our own personal development, but also in the lives of people that will impact with those very same skills that many people just hang up when they walk into the house at six o'clock in the evening and, uh, and put aside on the weekends, those skills could make a huge difference in our community. I totally agree with that. So third space in this context um, can be defined as a space that is created when students or communities quote, begin to reconceive who they are and what they may be able to accomplish academically and beyond. How have your professional endeavors created a similar type of third space for Kansas City's Black community? Wow, third space. Okay. So let me kind of place it in, in something that I could wrap my mind around. Maybe it's, it's in line or it's in unity with what you're saying. One of the things we did in our firm, uh, we were, uh, our firm was a firm of 24 professionals. Um, these were engineers, field technicians, and drafting technicians. Um, we had uh, IT techs and uh, administrative staff, management, marketing people. So it was 24. What was unusual about that is all but one was African-American, all but one. Now, people would say, how does, how does that work? Come on, this is Kansas City. It's not like you've got you know, a HBCU right next door where you can, where you can do this. No, we were very intentional about that. And so why? Well, my experience coming up before I went into business was that in those spaces, the normal corporate spaces that we're in, most people would lead you to believe that you're doing great just getting in the door. Uh, not a lot of investment at all in your development, not a lot of investment in uh, looking at you for management capabilities. And so I would see folks come in to the environment like I did, came in with your eyes wide open and then the lights dim out. Right. I had the advantage of my mentor, Morgan Watson. Had it not been for that, I don't think I would have done what I was able to do because my lights would have gone out. And I had an incident that happened at Burns and McDonald that was one of those that could have just dimmed the lights. I was able to overcome that um, when that incident occurred. So I, I wanna say that we were intentional about creating space so that African-American engineers, technicians, 
uh, marketing people could come in and get that, if you will, HBCU feeling, okay? Where we, we were investing in their development. We were motivationally supporting their self-concept because Alexis, what I found is the most devastating blow to us is not an attack on our competence because that, that's under attack just about any time you walk in the door. The most devastating blow is the attack on our confidence. Ooh. Ooh. Hold on, hold on, John, you got to say that again. You got to say that again. Okay. So the attack on the confidence, your skill level, where'd you go to school? Where'd you graduate? And what did you do? That's one thing. And people will challenge that all the time. Mm -hmm. But what we get is the attack on our confidence. That is when you, if your confidence has been shaken, it might take you two minutes to answer a simple question is how much is six plus six? Because you are so shaken and so afraid to make a mistake and so much have been consumed by this feeling of I don't deserve to be here that you never aspire to a level of greatness that you're fully capable of. Confidence is the biggest thief of our greatness and it's under attack in corporate uh, settings. So when we get into, and it's just not me saying this, there's all types of research that's been done on this topic. And I would, I would refer your listeners to a book called The Black Tax, where several research studies are listed that deal with this topic. So what we do is to get our folks together in one firm, and then we start working on the issues, not only skill development, but uh, in terms of their technical skills, but their soft skills, their leadership skills, their communication skills, and then we put people in positions to lead. So here's an example. I had folks working in our firm who came in a few years out of school, and within five years, they were in client meetings representing the firm. Had they stayed at a large firm, that would not have happened 10, 15 years, 10, 15 years down the line. That kind of exposure, that didn't, didn't take 10, 15 years to get that level of skill. It just takes that long for the people in front of you to get out of the way. Exactly. So how many folks are going to hang in there 10, 15 years to do something they could have done at five? And how many times have I seen African-Americans in large firms marginalized and kind of riding it out because they had those moments where their confidence had been taken from them? and they hadn't recovered. So the space that we created was a space where it was pro-Black, pro-African-American, if you will, pro-skills development, pro-developing yourself to a position of leadership. And the firm became a protective hedge around you to defend you when others came at you anyway. And we had that happen where other firms would come after our folks. And it's a different thing when you got a team on your side to fight than if you were fighting against a team by yourself. And from that, in our little firm, we had more African-American women engineers than just about any of the large firms in Kansas City. Wow. So those kinds of things are the result of you having a environment that is that is designed around our historical um, needs mm -hmm. and, uh, and in tailored to respond to those shortcomings that are not our fault 
with, with an intentionality of moving people to their greatness. That sounds like Jazz Chick African Center Shoelay, doesn't it? It sure does. That's my favorite place. <laughs> so that's what we did to create space. And I'm, I'm very, very proud of how that turned out. Yes, I'm, I'm loving all the stories that are coming out of there because I'm learning too. Like I knew a little bit about what you did, but just to hear what actually happened when you weren't at JS Chick is also a different perspective. So and you and he was there all the time, y'all. So just know that. <laughs> um, so along that same string of um, who you were able to impact and what you were able to do at Dubois, how has the Black community responded to your efforts and? What were some of the outcomes that were that felt the best to celebrate with the community? Well, there are some ones that felt really good, like the Kansas City has is celebrated its 42nd citywide. This year will be the 42nd citywide Kwanzaa celebration. Oh, that's amazing! Yes, <laughs> and that's one, that's one we were directly involved in getting established. And as you know, it's one of the largest celebrations of Kwanzaa. In the entire region, I don't. Maybe if you go to Los Angeles, some places bigger, but in this region, it's the largest one. And we have a seven-day celebration. And Alexis, when I run into young people who come in there and say, "I've been celebrating Kwanzaa my whole life," <laughs> and I, I get it, I say, "Well, this is somebody who certainly was young enough to come in here, or, or we were going before them." And then I've had folks tell me that their parents came to Kwanzaa and they've been coming all their life. And folks who now have children said, "I came to Kwanzaa all my life, and my children been coming all their life." That is very, very, very rewarding for me to hear that when I hear that. And so that's been received very well. And we had other things that we've done, like for example, African-centered education, now coming up on the Community Development Credit Union, and other things that we've been able to do in this community that has been received well. And Alexis, we've had some things that we've done with the best intentions that were not received very well. Because there are folks who are benefited or have a vested interest in the status quo. And uh, we, so we had many, and you were at some of those, many takeovers of school board meetings where we had to disrupt the process at the school board meetings because the status quo was okay, or they didn't, know, they didn't have a vision to see beyond the status quo. So for your listeners, we would, as parents and community activists, we would go down and shut down school board meetings because we just said enough business as usual. We need to expand African-centered education and they resisted, mm-hmm. uh, resisted. I mean, dr- you know, some parents were drug out of there by police. I mean, they resisted, but ultimately we were able to win out. So I would say even when we did some initiatives that were not very well received, uh, by and large, we learned a lot from those. We learned a lot from the ones that weren't successful and we're certainly inspired by the ones that were. So along with some of those obstacles that you mentioned, Ajamu, um, how should other professionals who are striving to be um, to be more of like a civic participant in their communities, how can they prepare for these, um, you know, unforeseen, unfavorable or outcomes? Well, that's a good question. Very good question. First of all, you, you want to take the position that everything is a learning experience. And if we take it that way, we won't be afraid to fail and we won't be afraid for people to talk bad about us because we're conditioned to get to always get the right answer and to not not make any waves. I mean, that's pretty much the conditioning that school is all about. Get the right answer, 
don't get it on don't get on anybody's nerves. You'll be a good employee. You'll go far in life. But that's not really how it works. You have to be prepared for resistance. You have to be prepared for people not appreciating the hard work that you're putting out because they don't see the vision. And you've got to be looking at everything as a learning experience. You're not going to be successful every single time out, but you got to use a baseball analogy. You got to keep coming up to the plate. Um, the other thing is put yourself around people with different skill sets. I've had people say, if you're the, you've heard this, if you're the smartest person in the group, you need to be in another group. I don't understand that. I don't, because I don't understand that. It's impossible to be the smartest person in everything. If you're in a team, there are going to be people with different skills than you have. And that's the most effective way to get something done. So don't, don't be afraid to work with people with different skill sets, but don't, don't try to, that, that whole adage about if you're the smartest person in the room, get another, get on another team. Come, that, that doesn't make sense. Right. That, that, that's crazy. Get it together. That's, get that's, it together. Be with a team of people that with different skill sets and some with your own skill sets to make things happen. But most importantly, if you think about the trial of our ancestors who were on, who were on a U.S. soil, if you think about what they went through, if you think about 250 something years in chattel slavery, that's that uh, if you started 1619 and it didn't start at 1619. And you think about the sacrifices they made and then the next generation that come out of it and get 100 years of lynching and Jim Crow and convict leasing and all of those uh, and policing, which really started about controlling the movements of African-Americans. That's what policing started in America. And it still does, a, it still does that as its primary objective. Then you got to remember nobody there was no generation that got up and said, what is the best I can do just for me so I can live a good life and, and uh, wall off and, stand and, uh, and you know, kind of live a video life? Every generation that sacrificed for us was doing it for future generations. So what I would say is that we've got to have a mindset that looks for the next two, three, four, five generations down the line and say, what can I do now so that that person, that person might be my grandchild or great-grandchild, is going to celebrate that action because it made their life better. We've got to be able to look down the line that way. And then if we pull all that together, then we can come up with a way of operating in corporate spaces to expand the boundaries. We can operate in and private spaces to expand the boundaries of who we are and what we need to get done. And we can do that in unison with what has been done for us so that we become the people that future generations will pour libations in their eyes. Thank you so much. And I, I really, again, identify what you're saying about seeing the vision and just knowing that it's always bigger than you. Well, at least that's something that I've tried to embody you know, attending JS Chick and having people like you just um, come in and just really pour into us is like, man, it's always bigger than me, you know? So um, being able to give back to the community in any kinds of ways by, you know, just highlighting things we go through and just creating that space to talk about it. That's all I'm, that's what I'm here for. So um, I want to ask you as well, Ajamu, because it sounds like you've had some people and things to kind of boost your your efforts to kind of engage with the community, especially the Black community in Kansas City. 
um, what types of support or partnerships would allow for professionals like yourself in these Black communities to engage in civics um, just a little bit better? What, what do you see um, happening? In terms of partnerships that allow to be gave, engage in civic activity? Yeah, or just, just the work that you're doing in general, too. Okay. There's a lot of opportunities out here uh, for young African-American professionals to get involved in civic engagement. Here's one that many people don't see, and that is to serve on public boards and commissions that the city of Kansas City has, I don't know, it's probably 40 different boards and commissions. And they're always looking for young people to serve because these are great places to get an overview of how city government works or uh, some of the quasi city government agencies work, how communities and neighborhoods are planned and planned for. And you get an opportunity to meet people that are outside of your normal engagement circle. So that's that's one. And many people get involved young in these areas and they leverage that to go on the political office. Another way to get engaged is to look for 501c3 organizations that are providing a civic good and go and volunteer. Again, my experience was the Du Bois Learning Center. But look for these organizations and go and volunteer. And when you walk in the door and people find out your skill level, you'll be a, you'll be a star right on the spot. People, oh my goodness, you went to college? Oh man, we could we could certainly use somebody like you. Like that's what happens. Okay. And many people are involved in their fraternal and sorority organizations. There's really no excuse not to be involved. There's only, I would say, a lack of vision on the benefits of being involved. Right. And then finally, I would say this. If you are a person and you put your own interests first all the time, you say, hey, I got to look out for number one. I got to put my interests first. That's, you know, I've got to look out for me. I've got to see what do I get out of this. That's fine. But you'll never be a leader of integrity. Because a leader that puts their interests first over the people they're responsible for or responsible to will essentially become corrupt. You can't be of service and lead in any organization, but particularly in this community, if your primary question is, what do I get out of this? or your primary goal is to look out for your interests first. So as long as you can adopt that approach as something similar, there are plenty of opportunities to get engaged and have a, a major impact. And people will see that, they will support it, they will applaud it, and you will find that it transfers over into your professional spaces. And I'll give you a quick example of that is, yeah, we had a small firm you know, 24 people, and we were doing civil and structural engineering. But it got to a point where the larger firms in Kansas City would contact us right off the bat early, as fast as they could, for us to partner with them on projects. And you might say, oh, that means because you guys are really excellent at what you do, and you're pretty sharp at what you do, and you create a great deal of value on the projects. Well, we'd like to think that was the case, but we know that's not the reason. Alexis, the reason for that is that, they, is that the large corporate engineering firms, they figured out that the distance between an African-American professional and an African-American elected official is much shorter than the distance between a white engineer and a white elected official, much shorter. 
So because we were out here involved in our community in a voluntary capacity, we knew all of our elected officials and they, more importantly, they knew us. So when a project would come up that had public funding in it, our elected officials wanted to see us and the big firms figured it out quick and they would love to go in and say, oh, you know what, by the way, Dubois is on our team. They found out that we could help them win. And if we could help them win, they wanted us on their team. And why were we able to help them win? Because the volunteer work we did in our community was something that was noticed and appreciated by the community leadership and the elected officials. And so you can see how doing work in your community where you're putting your community first can even benefit your career. Thank you so much, Ojama. Like, <laughs> I'm just sitting here in marvel, smiling, nodding my head and saying, yes, yes, yes. And I really just appreciate your perspective and your experience and just your passion for just everything that you've been doing in Kansas City, but then also beyond, because I know while you're working with Dubois, you are working outside of Kansas City as well. So I know you're making an impact there too. So just thank you again for sharing your thoughts on civic professionalism, all that stuff. You're welcome. Before we close today, and I'm so sad that our time's ending because you know I have more questions, but for the sake of time, for the sake of time, is there anything else um, that you want to leave our uh, listeners with um, to take with them before we close? I do. I just want to let your listeners know that this was some years ago, maybe 10, 15, well, maybe 15 years ago, maybe almost 20 years ago, we were working on this project of African-centered education. And we had this citywide Kwanzaa celebration coming up. And we had one of the renowned African drummer dance performers in the world, Papa Kamara, who was living in New Orleans. And because of Katrina, got displaced. And Ima Terry Brown, our dance instructor, brought him up to Kansas City to work with our students. And this is a world-renowned instructor in African dance and drumming, came up to check to work with our students. This was in December. We're getting ready for Kwanzaa. And I'll never forget going into the gymnasium at JS Chick, and there were dozens of students in there working with Papa Kamara. And he stood there, sat on stool, and he wanted to teach those students a song that would go with a performance and the song was in Wolof, which is a West African language from the Senegal, Senegambia area. And he had all of those students sing. And from that, he, he whittled it down to just one student, one student who had the poise, the confidence, and the mathematical skills and language skills to be able to grasp that song and not only convince Papa Kamara that that student is the one to perform it, but to perform that song in front of 500 people at the gym theater. And it was the most powerful presentation I'd ever seen. That person was Alexis Weatherspoon. That is when I took a notice to you and I knew that whatever you put your mind to, you would far exceed your own expectations. There's brilliance in you. There's creativity in you. And I know that you have a heart for your community and your people. I started by saying I'm proud of you. And I will end by saying I am so proud of you for who you've become and what you are able to do for your community and for your people. Thanks to you, to your parents, 
your grandparents, your great-grandparents, all of those whose life experience have poured down to you and you are standing here in their stead showing the world how great they were through your actions. Thank you so much. I'm over here reminiscing and I'm like, as you're telling the story, I say, oh my goodness, he's going to put me on front street. But thank you so much for adding that. And yes, for the community, miss my community. I'll be home soon. And I just want to keep making everybody proud. So it was a pleasure catching up with you today, Jamo. I can't thank you enough for sharing with us. And so we will wrap this episode of Varying Viewpoints. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to seeing you in the next podcast.